you'll open your Bibles, please, the book of Genesis, chapter number 1. Genesis chapter 1. As we continue, I think this is the third week of the series here, and uh, Lord willing, I want to preach through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. I think all the ultimate questions of life will be answered in those passages, so I'm glad you're here. I don't think I've ever preached a more important series than this. So Genesis chapter 1 in your Bible, and stand, if you will, as we read the first five verses today, and we're going to try to go through most of the chapter here, but we'll just read the first five verses. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Thank you. And you may be seated. I've pointed out this previously in the messages, but it needs to be restated often. The Bible begins with God. The first or the fourth word of the Bible, in the beginning, God. He comes on early in the scriptural account. The word is word used here is Elohim, a Hebrew word that means the powerful one, the one who has infinite power and the one who keeps his promises. The promise-keeping God is the God that we meet here. It says that he created then the heaven and the earth. The word created is a word that means there was nothing before. He created everything. There was nothing from which he could create, of course. And so, There was nothing to begin with at all except the Trinity, Almighty God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then God begins to create. And His method, if you notice, is throughout chapter 1, you will see, His method is that God simply spoke things into existence. We call that creation by divine fiat. That's the fancy word for it, a Latin word, but we use that a lot. A fiat is a command. It is God speaking and commanding that things occur, and they do occur when God speaks, the power of the Word of God. Ten times you're going to find here in chapter 1 that it says, let. God said, let. And something then occurs when he says that. He actually is meaning, let it take place. Let whatever he's referring to occur. Let it take place. And then it always says after that, and it was so. When God commands, he says, let this happen, and it happens. And he calls things into existence. Every time God speaks here, something is differentiated from everything else. For example, here, there's absolute darkness. There's no light source at all in the universe. And God says, let, may it be so. Let it take place. Let there be light. And immediately, there's a differentiation. There's darkness, and there's light. 
And each time that he speaks, he differentiates something from everything else that has existed prior. Now, we're going to begin in verse number two today and verse, go through verse 31, I hope. I'm going to go as quickly as I can. But I want you to, I want to just give you a statement of what this entire first chapter is about. And by the way, you take the first chapter of Genesis, but then you come back and the second chapter deals with some of the same events. It just reiterates them. It rehearses them for us. And so you have literally two accounts of the initial creation. In verses 2 through 31, what you have is a process here that involves six days in which God took the formless, watery suspension that He created here when it says He created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, He created time. The heavens are space. The earth here is matter. So God has created time and space and matter, the three essential building blocks of the entire universe. God has created those things, but they're without any form, according to verse 2. The earth was out without form and void. And it was dark. There was no light source. Just this watery suspension, this matrix of matter and all the elements that God was going to use in the following verses here to create an entire universe. And so, here we have this formless, waterless suspension of mud, earth, all the elements that God was going to use in His creation process. And at the end of the chapter, He's going to have completed that, and there's going to be a beautiful, wonderful paradise created, a home for mankind throughout his time upon the earth. Now, when you preach from Genesis 1, you know that you are going to run into some contradictions from, with what people have learned because many of you have been educated in evolutionary theory and uh, science of today, and people think there's this, this uh, conflict between the Bible and science. So, before I get into the content very far, let me say something. I hope you will really hear it. I hope you'll grasp it. I don't believe that there is a conflict anywhere between the Bible and proven science. The emphasis be on proven. Now, there's a lot of conflict between the Bible and uh, theories of science, hypothesis hypotheses that scientists have where they hypothesize about the creation and the world as it exists. But proven science, science that has been proven by reality, that has been proven through the years, I don't think you're going to find conflicts in the Bible, between the Bible and that kind of science. We've recently been through a period, and science has lost a lot of respect here in the last couple of years. Because we've had people saying they were scientists and speaking authoritatively, and then we find out it, it just didn't happen. It wasn't right. They were incorrect in their facts. True science is not going to change every few months or every few weeks. If it's truth, it's going to endure. So don't go into the book of Genesis believing that 
you know, the scientists say this and the Bible says that and they can't be reconciled. Oh, yes, I believe that God's Word is true and proven science is true as well. I have no conflict with that. So today we're going to look here and we're going to see the title of my message is A World in a Week. A World in a Week. How God created the world in six days of creation, what the Bible teaches about creation. I'm not a scientist, obviously. I'm a preacher. But I believe my Bible. I know something about the Bible. And I know what the Bible teaches. And that's what I want to teach you today. I can't deal with every scientific theory in the time I have. And so let's begin and find out what the Word of God teaches here about a world in a week. Day one. God divided the light from the darkness. We've already read the text. In verse 3, I want you to notice they're the first recorded words of God. The first recorded words of God. And what is it? Let there be light. And as I've already described, the earth, I believe at this point, based upon verse 1 and 2, that everything was at this unformed mass in this watery suspension Matter, energy, created by the hand of God in verse number one. It's in the darkness. There is no light source anywhere. And God now creates the light. Let there be light, verse three, and there was light. Now, here's the, here's the thing that makes this interesting. There's no light source. He doesn't create the sun until the fourth day. So we have three days yet to go, and yet we have light existing. And where does that light come from? Well, I had to study a little bit about that, but I found out that light is produced when atoms are ex excited, was the term they used, or energized, and then they emit energy called photons. When you plug in a light bulb, you excite the atoms that are there. And so it emits these photons, or we call it light or light energy, if you will. And so God didn't need the sun. He had all the energy and matter before him that he had originally created. So he has no problem doing this. Now, some people say, well, God is light. But this, I don't believe, is God's essence, his being. This is God creating something else, a, a light that is going to give illumination here until the sun, the moon, and the stars are created a few days hence. Now, last week we talked about there are two great forces when God created all this. There are two great forces that are operating on matter, and they still are today. And one of them is gravity that holds us down to the earth and gives things weight. And the second thing is electromagnetism. And so between those two uh, th those two uh, powers, if you will, those two things, energized by the Holy Spirit himself. In verse number two, where it says, the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. So God, the Spirit, acts upon this, this uh, unformed, shapeless mass, and he begins to create the world. Look in verse five. It says, the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, that's the Jewish reckoning of time. You begin with the evening at 6 o'clock, go to 6 o'clock in the morning, the first 12 hours. That's called the night. 
And then in the Jewish matter of time, it's the morning at 6 a.m. till noon, and then it's the afternoon, and and then you go back to the night cycle. So it reverses what we do here. But here's what I want you to notice that's interesting. The night-day cycle is now functioning. And so we're having approximately 12 hours of light, 12 hours of darkness. The cycle has now been set up which tells me what? This proves to me that the earth is now rotating. The earth is rotating. Why do we have night and day? Because the earth is rotating. So the rotational energy of the earth is now operational on day one. We have light and we have darkness. The earth appears to be rotating. And six times now after this, we're going to read the Evening and the morning were the first day. The first day. The key word there is day, because you've heard about all the controversy regarding this word day, I imagine. And so what is a day? Well, the word for day here in the Bible, Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M, yom, the Hebrew word for day means what it means to us. We say this is uh, March the 20th. This is a day, meaning the, de- the night and the day cycle, the dark and the light cycle. But it can also mean just the daylight portion. And so we can say, uh, well, we're going to go in as soon as the daylight ends. And we mean the portion of light during the day, the 24-hour cycle. And sometimes we use the word day to refer a to a much longer indefinite period of time. So we refer to back in my grandfather's day, and that's an indefinite period of time. We we don't, my grandfather's day is uh, his lifespan. It's, It's an indefinite longer period of life, if you will, or a period of time rather. And so the word day can mean three, three different things at least. It can mean a 24 hour cycle, it can mean the period of light. It can mean an age, a, a decades or millennia even, uh, long ages, if you will. Now, it won't surprise you, I'm sure, when I tell you that I believe these are six literal 24-hour days, six literal 24-hour days that God made the world in a week. Now, there's there are people, and, and, and even sincere Christian people who would differ with me on that, they believe these are ages, that each day represents an age, an, an era, a long epic period of time. However, uh, I, I, I don't take that view, and uh, I, I don't want to go into the history of that view, but basically that view came with people trying to accommodate and reconcile the Bible with uh, the latest scientist science that tended to change in time as well. I'll give you four reasons. I believe these are literal days right here that uh, make sense to me. Number one, there's nothing in the context here to suggest that a day means an age. There's nothing here that would suggest that these days are anything other than just days. If you were God trying to tell people how you created the heavens and the earth, what words would you use if you didn't? Uh, what, what word would you say if you wanted to communicate an age? 
If you really wanted to communicate an age, you wouldn't say day. Most people understand the day to be 24 hours. And so there's nothing in the context that indicates this is anything more than a 24-hour day. Number two, each day has distinct boundaries. There's a beginning and an end, an evening and a morning. It says it over and over in your Bible. The evening and the morning, the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning. So there's distinct boundaries where ages, millions of years, there's no distinct boundary there. Number three, I believe these are 24-hour days because evening and morning make no sense if you're describing a thousand years or a million years or an indefinite period of time. Makes no sense. Why would God keep saying evening and morning and repeat it six times in just a few verses here? And then number four, as a Christian, I believe God didn't need an age. He could have created it in six microseconds if he had wanted. He could have created it in whatever time he had chosen. And so uh, I don't want to say, oh, it took God millions of years because in doing that, I am, I, I am really slandering the sovereignty and power of Almighty God to a degree. So those are the four reasons I believe these are literal days. But now, listen to me. There are implications in believing that. You think about this. If, for example, these are 24-hour days and not ages, as many people believe today, if these are literal days, then the earth is far younger, far, far younger than what you have been taught the earth, or the age of the earth is. The earth is if, if, if you believe these are six literal days and you'll take the, the, the Bible and study it seriously, you're going to come up with the Bible being something less, or the Bible, the, the, the earth being less than 10,000 years old. And uh, you don't need all those ages if you, will, if, if you will interpret it that way. Now, the evolutionist if you think that uh, my saying the earth is less than 10,000 years old is a little extreme, well, what about the evolutionists that taught you in high school or college? They taught you that the universe is, the universe itself is between 13 and 14 billion years old. <laughs> who, who figured that out? Do you know how much a billion is? You hear those big numbers so much, we don't even think about them today. You know, you know what a billion is? And who was the genius that sat in his office with his computer and said, oh, it's between 13 and 14 billion? Well, it could have been 16 or 17 billion. could have been 7 or 8 billion. If you're going to throw big numbers around. And then they say the world, the, the earth, the universe is 13 to 14 billion, but the, um, the earth is uh, 4.3 billion. That's the 4.3 that hangs me up. I mean, what about, I understand the 4. What about the 0.3? Who in the world thinks they could actually accurately um, make calculations like that? And so uh, I stand with these young earthers, these young earthers we call ourselves. We believe the Bible is less, or the Bible, the earth is less than 10,000 if the Bible teaches that. Now, when you leave today, I've got something that is really 
important. I want to give it to you. The usher is going to stand at the door and give it to everybody. Please get one and please read it. It's called The Creation Week, A Systems-Based Approach. And it's just a page and a half of tremendous material written by Jeffrey Tompkins, Ph.D. And the reason I used his article, there's thousands of them, but Mr. Tompkins is a Ph.D. professor, a former professor at Clemson University. Oh, my. If he's from Clemson, it's got to be true. Amen? So all you orange lovers today, boy, there is the Bible for you. There's Holy Writ. You understand? And Mr. Tompkins couldn't be wrong. He taught at Clemson. But at any rate, he is like, oh, thousands of scientists today, thousands of scientists who are saying, look, there's all kinds of holes in this evolutionary theory, and it is a theory. In fact, Another scientist has written a wonderful book that I just got a few days ago called Thousands and Not Billions, Thousands and Not Billions. And he takes all of the dating methods, the carbon-14 and all these things, and he shows the fallacy of these dating methods. And basically, he's saying to you, look, you're not foolish. You don't have your head in the sand to believe the Bible account that the earth was created by God in six literal 24-hour days. Now, i got to pick it up, don't I? Day two. Day two, verse 6. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament. Circle the word firmament there and write expanse. That's what the word firmament literally meant, or space. Firmament means space or the expanse of the heavens. And so God made the firmament, and He divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. So we have water in two places in this this initial universe that God is creating. Water under the firmament, which would be probably liquid in form. Waters above the firmament, which most of the creationist scientists would say that's water vapor. Now, that's not clouds. Vapor is invisible. It's not a fog. It's not droplets. It's vapor that God suspended above the earth and placed the heavens in between the waters above and the waters beneath. And He differentiates again, and He creates the, what we would call space or the expanse that goes out from terra firma here from the earth. And then on day three, we continue beginning in verse nine, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth And the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And so God gathers the waters into what he calls the seas. And that, of course, made the dry land to appear. The word for land here is is the word firm in the Hebrew language. So we call the earth today what? We call it terra firma. 
the firm part as opposed to the seas and, and the water. And so now we have the dry land, earth, and we have, up until now, this planet has just been this shoreless ocean, if you will, of water and, and earth and mud and elements, but now it's really beginning to take shape, step at a time. And then verse 11 tells me that God began to create the plant life. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And God said, let, and it was so. And in verse 12, the earth brought forth grass, an herb yielding seed after its kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. My, what powerful, powerful stuff is happening here. And it's happening so very quickly. We can hardly, uh, we can hardly keep up with it here. And so God spoke, and there was vegetation, verse 11. Notice the vegetation is in three classifications. There's grass, and that's one category of the vegetative or plant world. And then there's trees, and then there's herbs that God created here. He classifies them. Notice something else that's interesting. He creates all of this plant life, and it's already mature. Its seed is in itself meaning it's mature, it's ready for reproduction. And we have the word seed for the first time in the Bible, an important word. And so God creates out of matter, He creates life, DNA for the first time, plant life, if you will. So we've gone from inert matter to life, it's unconscious life, plant life, trees, herbs, grasses, but it's life. It has DNA. It lives. It can reproduce itself, which the earth, dirt, and so on cannot. Now, look at the phrase there. For the first time it appears and circled in your Bible in verse 11, after his kind, after his kind, and you see this ten times in the rest of this chapter. Ten times after his kind. And here we come into a major conflict with uh, evolutionary science. And here's the conflict that things reproduce after their kind. That things don't change in their reproduction as they reproduce and become something else. They are locked in, if you will. If you will. They, they reproduce according to their own DNA. So we don't, have, we don't have fossil records today of any what they call transitional forms. We don't have, there are no fossils of something becoming something else. If, if a tadpole uh, evolved into a fish, we don't have a halfway point, but half tadpole, half fish. There's no fossils of that. You either have fish or you have tadpoles. There are no intermediate um, transitional forms with all the billions of, of fossils that exist on this earth. There's not one single fossil that's outside of its own kind. Things always reproduce what they are. 
Now, this is a problem for the evolutionist to explain that away. It's, it really is virtually impossible for him to. But it's something else here, too, in this passage. This is a powerful argument itself for the 24-hour day, creation. You see, God created the light, and on the fourth day, He creates the plants. Now, uh, the plants would not be able to live if these were ages, but they could live for one day without light. They could live without the sun for a day, but they can't live without the sun for thousands of years. But if it's a 24-hour day, we don't have any problem here with this. We have plants, but we don't have a sun yet. And, of course, in verse number 13, he says it again, the evening and the morning, boundaries on the time. The evening and the morning were the third day. Verse 14, we go to day four. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament, the space, the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater one to rule the day, the sun, the lesser one to rule the night. And he made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament, in space to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good in the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So he makes the luminaries, the light sources for the entire universe. Up until now, it's only been the light that was created from energy in some way we don't really know, but certainly is scientifically possible. Now he makes the sun, the moon, the stars. I want you to notice in verse number 14, the word, let them be for signs. So he didn't randomly scatter them. He didn't just throw them out there. He placed them. He set them in the heavens. And so we have today the constellations. We have the Great Dipper, the Little Dipper, the Bear. We have all these constellations that sort of form an imaginary figure And through the centuries, men have used those. They've depended upon those. For example, they navigated across the seas for hundreds and hundreds of years following the stars. And not only does he say they were to be used for guidance and for navigational purposes, but if you will, he says they mark the seasons. They're for signs and for seasons, days and years. And so the seasons, we have a month related to the moon. We have days related to the sun. We have the uh, years, the journey of the earth around the sun through the solar system. All of these we depend upon today because God set up the universe like that. That didn't just randomly happen. Come on. And then we go to day 5 in verse 20. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life. Now we're going to move from inert material, verse 1, to the plant life in verse 11. 
And now in verse 20, we're going to move to animal life or bird life and fish life. Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life, DNA. And the fowls that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind. And every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas. And let the fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So God created birds and fishes. In verse 20, mark in your Bible there the phrase, bring forth abundantly. Here's what it means. It means to swarm, to swarm, or to abound. Another term would be to abound. And so he said, I'm not creating one little fish. I'm not creating one little bird. I'm creating swarms of them. I want them to fill up the air. I want them to fill up the oceans and the rivers of the world. I want them to abound, to swarm, to bring forth abundantly. And again, we have a refutation of what you've been taught in school. You see, you and I have probably been taught, I was taught when I went to school, the evolutionary idea that uh, a single speck of protoplasm somewhere in the universe came into contact with an electrical charge out over the primeval mix, and life began. Who was there to know that? That's an hypothesis. That's a theory. That's conjecture. That's speculation. That's, that's a guess. But God's Word says, God said, let them abound. Let them swarm. Have you ever seen a whole, well, I don't know what you call it, hundreds and thousands of sparrows, and they almost turned the sky black. They swarm. What beautiful language and how true to life it is. Now, a swarm of avian and aquatic life, invertebrates, vertebrates, reptiles, everything you can think of, it's all there. And go to verse 21. It's an interesting verse. God created great whales. And the Hebrew word is tannin, T-A-N-N-I-N. And a tannin is translated whale here. But in the book of Job, for example, it's, it's, it's translated like a sea monster. Or it's translated sometimes as a dragon in the Bible or a serpent. There are four or five different renderings of that same word. Now, I have people ask me, well, what about the dinosaurs? Where do you think they were created? Right there. Right there. And read the book of Job, chapter 41. Not right now, but when you get home, read Job 41. There's a character there called Leviathan. And most of the Bibles will say this is a crocodile or something like hippopotamus or something. But if you'll read it and think about dinosaurs, it is an absolute description of, uh, of a dinosaur. Uh, which variety, I don't know, but read Job 41 and ask yourself, 
When did God create the dinosaurs? Well, there's the word, tannin. The great creatures like the whales and the dinosaurs and other creatures that we don't even know anything about today, perhaps. Notice again, they're created after their kind. There's no reproduction outside of their own DNA, if you will. And now we move from the inert material, the matter, to the plant life, to the bird and aquatic life, conscious life now for the first time. And in verse 22, God blessed them. And He said to them, be fruitful and multiply. First time we've heard that in the Bible. Fill the waters in the seas and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And we come to the last day, day six. And here God created the living creatures and man. God said, verse 24, let the earth bring forth the living creature, animal life, if you will, after his kind. Here it is again, the cattle. Three classifications of the animals that the Bible makes. Cattle, domesticated animals. Creeping things, literally that says those things that are close to the ground. Fishing worms, woolly worms, grasshoppers, rodents. You could go on and on and on. Creeping things, snakes. And the beast of the earth, that would be the wild animals. That's the lions and tigers and elephants. So we have domesticated animals, cattle, the creeping things, the little things on the ground, the insects, the beast of the earth, the wild animals that we imagine we go to the zoo to see, and it was so. And so God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, no transitional forms, everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw it was good. And so God created the animal kingdom, if you will, and pronounced all of them good. One thing I'd say about that, there was no struggle for survival here. This is not the survival of the fittest. Everybody's calm at this point. We're not eating each other. In fact, down at the end of it, you'll see here down in verse 29 and 30, they're all eating the herbs, the vegetation. They're not, the tiger is not, and the lion is not eating the little lamb. They're eating herbs. This is before the flood. This is before the curse. This is the earth as created in its paradise form, its perfection as God intended it always to be before sin and death and pain entered into the earth. You can't help but read this and not notice the emphasis upon his kind there. Verse 24 and 25, after his kind four times, it's just like God is just, he just just taking a hammer and driving that nail over and over and over after his kind, after his kind, reproduction after his kind, everything produces after his kind. And then we come to verse 26, and God said, let us, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not let I or me, let us, the Trinity, make man in our plural image after 
our likeness. He hasn't said that about anything else. Birds are not the likeness of God. Animals are not the likeness of God. Matter is not the likeness of God. The likeness of God is man after our likeness. And let the man have dominion, rulership, authority over the fish, over the fowl, over the cattle, over all the earth and all of its elements, and over every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Wow. How relevant is that? Two genders, no transitional forms. <laughs> Two genders, male and female created he them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. About the only thing man has ever obeyed God with. And replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the fowl and over every living thing that moveth. And so we have God creating man. The word created is only used three times in this chapter. First one, when he created the initial matter, energy, space, elements of the universe. And the second time, when he created life with the plant life there, DNA, life was created and it the word created is used. All the other places, it's make. And then we come here. When it comes to the creation of man, man is created in the image of Almighty God. The term man used in your Bible that some of the world today doesn't like that. They say that's sexist and so on. But it explains itself in verse 27 the word man is generic, generic for male and female. It includes both, of course. So God blessed them, verse 28. And he pronounced the entire creation as being good. Note with me, if you will, in verse 4, God said on the first day that uh, it was good. And then in verse 10, God said, it was good. And in verse 12, he says, it's good. And in verse 18, he says, it's good. And if you'll go with me to verse 25, it's good. And verse 31, it's good. It's good because there's, there's no pain. There's no death. There's no death because there's no sin. Sin created death. So there's no death, there's no sin, there's no pain, there's no sorrow. It is perfect because that's the way God made it. Isn't that a far more appealing and beautiful picture than tooth and claw and struggle and death and blood? and animosity between every species. This is the way God created the universe. Now it's going to change. Chapter 3 is going to change everything. And chapter 6 and 7 and 8 is going to change it even more. 
But right now, we'll stop right there. God created a perfect earth. Every part of it, mineral, plant, animal, human. It was good, God said. Where was Jesus through all this? He's not mentioned by name here. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning uh, was the Word. And then it says down in verse 10 that without Him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is active in this process. God the Father, verse 1. God the Son, or God the Spirit, verse 2. And John 1 and 10, Jesus active in the creation. And then one of the saddest verses in the Bible. In verse 11 of John 1, it says, And he, he came into the world, and the world knew him not. The world didn't even recognize its own creator. And it rejected him and crucified him because the world had turned sinful. It was under a curse. It was at enmity, at hostility with God. And when the creator came, they crucified him. How sad. But the verse following is so hopeful. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Have you received him as your Savior and your Lord today? As many as received Jesus, he gave them power to become something. To become what? His children. Relationship is established through receiving Jesus Christ. If you want to be related to God and have a relationship, Jesus Christ is the way. You come by him. Our heads are bowed. And if you would stand quietly and reverently to your feet with me, please.